Hi. Um, I want to welcome you to tonight's event. Um, the National Academy Museum and School of Fine Arts is pleased to prevent, present this special session. <laughs> prevent, I love that. The review panel. I'm Bruce Weber, senior curator and acting co-director of the National Academy. On behalf of our president, Susan Shatter, I would like to thank the following organizations for enabling us to bring you this thought-provoking series. The Edith and Herbert Lehman Foundation, the Daedalus Foundation, the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, and the New York State Council on the Arts. Although the review panel takes a break during the summer months, we will return on Friday, October 17th for another exciting season. In the meantime, please join us here at the National Academy for An Artist's Life with Katie Siegel on May 29th and the rescheduled Richard York Memorial Lecture with Bill Agee on June 18th. Please visit our website for more information. Although you may know him best as the moderator of the review panel in his off hours, David Cohen is also an art critic and contributing editor for the New York Sun, the gallery director for the New York Studio School, and the editor and publisher of artcritical.com. And now it is my pleasure to introduce you to David Cohen. Thank you very much indeed, Bruce, and thanks to the National Academy for the, the fabulous task they do in uh, making this series possible. I think we're on the 26th installment of the review panel, so uh, we've been going for four years. Let us know by a show of hands if this is your first review panel. Inspiring. There's always 50% always new people, and yet you look at the crowd and it looks like a, a familiar group of people. So. Um, what that signifies, we'll have to convene another review panel to discuss. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, as you will all know, tonight is a slight departure, a, a biennial departure in our usual format. Instead of reviewing a selection of four or five current exhibitions, the panel is convened to consider one uh, fairly mammoth, sprawling exhibition, the exhibition that takes place every couple of years at the Whitney Museum of American Art, the biennial. Our panel from my right uh, is, uh, consists of uh, Bob Baker, writing under the name R.C. Baker, as uh, an art critic for The Village Voice, where he writes features, art and book reviews, and the weekly Best in Show column. Uh, his artworks have been exhibited at the Drawing Center, White Columns, the Center for Book Arts and other venues in and around New York. Uh, and he is the recipient of a New York Foundation for the Arts Painting Fellowship. Carly Berrick uh, reviews art and books for Bloomberg News. She's a contributing editor uh, at Art News and also writes about art for Condé Nast Traveler and New York Magazine, where she wrote the cover story on what she dubbed the Facebook Biennial. And Peter Plagans, art critic for Newsweek, is the author of Sunshine Muse, Art on the West Coast, 1945 to 70, and the novel Time for Robo, among other works. And his writings appear in numerous publications, including occasionally The Nation, um, uh, Art in America, and other journals. He is uh, also a painter, 
uh, who shows his work at Nancy Hoffman Gallery. So ladies and gentlemen, that is your panel. Please welcome them. Another little um, opinion poll. Uh, tell us if you, uh, it's not an opinion poll, it's a uh, statistical analysis, but just um, uh, without any rec recriminations to those whose hands don't go up, but just out of interest, how many of you got, uh, got managed to get to the biennial? Just have a look at it. Well, that's, um, it's, an, it's, a, it's a joke that some of you are probably bored of hearing, but uh, it's a better ratio than the, the panel, so we should be okay. <laughs> Great. So um, we're going to start, though, even though we have all seen the show, with a little visual reminder of uh, some of the things we may have seen there uh, in a PowerPoint presentation, which uh, Gabby Grodin, who capably put this, the presentation together, will uh, let us see. To start with, <coughs> several installation shots just to give uh, a reminder for the, of the, uh, the kind of way in which the space is used. That's uh, Rodney McMillian there, uh, Bechtler at the, on the far wall, and um, yeah. Great, and now we have just a, a a selection of artists who may come up in our conversations. Rita Ackerman, paintings on the second floor. Edgar Arsenault's uh, video installation of comics, uh, comedians. Um, Fia Backstrom's uh, collaborative work. John Baldessari. The photorealist painter Robert Bechtler. Walid Beshti. And Carol Bove. This is the room of Joe Bradley's work. Olaf Bronig, who... Jedediah <laughs> uh, Caesar on the, uh, on the second floor. These rather extraordinary works in uh, rubber, or whatever. Omar Fast, who won the Buxbaum Award with this video. Rashawn Griffin, whose works hang in the lobby. Rachel Harrison, video projection, and also the fixed works and the sculptural work. Oh, that's Ellen Harvey at work, which is not, yes, that's more, that's the part of the installation with those mirrors in front of it. Spike Lee's movie was playing uh, on, on the Katrina catastrophe. Charles Long, room of his sculpture. Mitzi Pedersen, getting a neck ache here. Mika Rottenberg, uh, that walkthrough installation with those farmyard incidents. Lisa Siegel. Uh, 
Phoebe Washburn has uh, Right. Ah, oh, we're back to the beginning, are we? Okay. I think we can cap it, actually, and we'll call on your services um, if... Uh, as and when we may turn our attention to specific works. But I, I wonder if we can have a few uh, minutes of some preliminary thoughts about the, bien, the, uh, the biennial before we come on to really decide if we, we've worked out what it stands for, what it means, which individual works resonate with us and which perhaps particularly annoy us. Well, under, under that uh, rubric of annoyance, the people who raised their hands who actually saw the biennial, I'm wondering how many of you liked or loved it? If you could raise your hands. Was that like or love? Well, I was curious as I was reading the catalog, they mentioned that the biennial is always something that people either love or hate. And I have to say, I've been going to biennials for somewhere around 20 years with people from all walks of life, disgruntled artists who weren't in the show, uh, writers, critics. And I've heard many, many people say, God, I hated that biennial. I don't think in 20 years I've ever heard one person say, I really love that biennial. Um, it doesn't, and that's no reflection on the critics over the years. I think any group show is a, is a difficult thing to put together. It's a little like, if you're walking through a group show, it's like watching television with someone else who has the channel changer. And I think a lot of times in the biennial, it's someone you don't particularly like who's changing the channels as you go through. <laughs> And I think it's a thankless task to try and pick out, especially nowadays out of a zeitgeist, to pick out the cream or what's important when the zeitgeist currently is, is just Swiss cheese. There's just, I, I don't know what exactly you can hang on to. And I mean, if you're a baseball player and you hit 300, you're a Hall of Famer. I don't know if 200 years from now, when we're all dead, if 30% of these artists anybody's going to care about. And how important that is, I don't know, because we only have what we have now. But I did find this a particularly bleak biennial. And I certainly didn't, didn't love it. I can't say I hated it, because there's some wonderful things in it. But I did find it kind of bleak. And I'm wondering if other people, what they thought of it in a general term. Can I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. Did you find it bleak because of um, what some people seem to complain about that it, you know, it didn't have much thrust to it? It was sort of no, like I that think it was the subjects, way. or because I'm answering your question for, but another choice is the sort of the, the somewhat abject nature of a lot of the work in it. Definitely, it was the subjects, the the sadness of some of it. I think we're I, I mean, it's in all the papers that we're a country that seems to be going in the wrong direction. And I think there was some of that certainly reflected. But, uh, but art can, can take on bleak subjects or, or be in the minor key or have a melancholy disposition or be uh, uh, politically indignant and not be bleak aesthetically. And I, I think audiences that attend 
an event like the Whitney Biennial are generally uh, mature and sophisticated enough not to require um, jolly pictures of smiling faces to, to feel <laughs> that they've had a valuable couple of hours of their time. So I, I think one would want to make a distinction, don't you agree, Carly, right from the beginning, between um, a bleak <laughs> subject matter and an bleak aesthetic experience. Well, I think uh, Peter made that distinction in his question. Um, I think the, the, question, the difficulty of um, uh, categorizing any biennials that we're going to recategorize it in two, four, six years. Um, um, I know the 2006 one, um, I reviewed for Art News and found it very dark, and then I found the, um, it now being referred to as post-punk in a kind of celebratory way. Um, as, being, as being referred to as what, sorry? Uh, Post-punk. Post Some reviewers revising uh -huh. in the very same paper the verdict that they had rendered two years prior. Um, 2006 was, you know, bleak and unremittingly, you know, abject as well. Apparently, we're still stuck and, you know, spinning our wheels, but the works, I would say, are very different. Um, so that um, I'm not sure, even though one is uh, required to, um, when writing about it as a critic, especially um, um, having seen the full show, which is different than how I wrote about it this year, um, uh, you're required to render a verdict, which probably in, you know, in a, f a few years um, will we'll have a different uh, perspective as well. Yes, yes. Uh, we, uh, uh, critics are expected to, um, and indeed any visitor, is expected to come away from a Whitney Biennial with an interpretation, a sense of what it might have meant. Um, and, but I wonder if that's really feasible anymore. It seemed in the catalogue, especially in Adam Weinberg's introduction, that there's almost a sort of magisterial abnegation of that responsibility. There's a sense that we can no longer do that or even be expected to try. Um, and yet, um, if you go to, yet, if you go to something like... Um, uh, one of the art fairs, uh, which is, there's no, uh, notwithstanding Volta, which is semi-curated, if you go to the main uh, armory show, it's the invisible hand of the market, not uh, two bright curators who've devoted two years of their life to it, who've assembled this crew, and yet it might just as easily have a zeitgeist to it. You're looking at me, so I ought to say... I'm looking know. at... Uh... <laughs> That's because I was staring at you, yes. probably. Um, the Whitney Biennial. Uh, during the years that I was on staff at Newsweek, I'm not anymore, and I only do about half a dozen pieces a year. Um, you know, I took one of those retirement things about five years ago. I used to have to come up with something about the Biennial. And I'm, I'm getting to something here. And it was impossible and useless in either order to review the biennial for a, a general audience. I mean, nobody would have gotten it. It was what they called around the magazine, you know, too inside baseball. These artists were left out. These artists should have been in. This artist was like, nobody was going to get it. So I always had to dummy up some kind of thing to write about that wasn't a review. One time... Larry Rinder actually, well, the Whitney let me, you know, be a fly on a wall at a few of the meetings, and I went out with Larry Rinder to Chicago and Austin, Texas, when he went on studio visits. You know, something to get a handle on it. Um, so one, it was kind of impossible to get a, to get a hold of. 
the other thing is that I noticed by absence that this time, maybe, I don't know whether this is the first time this time, but nobody that I, just in the buzzing around and then I talked to, nobody was asking anymore what the hell is the, are the criteria for, for, you know, works being in the Whitney. It used to be asked a lot, is this the best art made by the la you know, over the last two years? Well, if it is, how come a lot of the more of the old war horses aren't in it? Because certainly, let's say, Richard Serra has to have made a pretty good piece of art within the last two years. Um, is it the newest and the, you know, the, the cutting edge? Well, if so, why Bob Bechtel? Um, is it, uh, uh, the, did I say the best? Yeah, is it an emerging artist show? You know, that sort of stuff. And it used to be used to hear that around, and then this time, like, nobody asks anymore. And that when you said abdignation, you know, mm. it's almost like, okay, we don't know what it is, and we don't care what it is anymore. It's just, yes. you know what I mean? It's sort of mm. there. That seems to be what they, I, I realize I chose the wrong word. I should have said abdication rather than negation. But that's... Um, um, That's what I meant, too. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's good to be with a, a, a fellow illiterate who's as distinguished as yourself. So um, the, the point is that, yeah, the point is that it's, it's as if to say, you know, forget criteria. This is a good, just, just enjoy the show. Just sit back and enjoy it. I mean, once upon a time, there was the Whitney Annual and then the Whitney Biennial. And, and it was very New York-centric, but it was, there was a sense that it was a saying to the, to the public, uh, uh, this is an official view of the best that's happening, uh, the exciting thing that's happening. Um, there wasn't really that much competition in, in uh, say, 20 years ago as far as survey exhibitions of current art are concerned. But now, with the advent of the whole fair phenomenon, every year a mammoth overdose of uh, very broad uh, surveys, uh, the new museum... Uh, with a perennial kind of uh, turning over kind of display of uh, biennial style um, overviews, um, you know, and more and more people able to attend foreign uh, events like the Venice Biennale and Documenta and so on and so forth. Are we in a, a state of overload with such surveys? Is that part of our problem? Perhaps. Well, you mentioned the new museum, which opened its galleries with that kind of the non-art, well, not non-art, obviously. Non-monumental. Rather, the unmonumental and everything. And that was certainly a trend I saw continued mm -hmm. in this show. Um, by far, I guess, if I'm going to be do my best in show gig, the piece that the artist that I liked the most in this and really loved was Charles Long. And mm -hmm. he was doing sculptures of literally shit. And... I thought they were, the photographs were beautiful. I'd seen them before at, a, at his gallery. And the sculptures were these things that take the most abject thing in nature and turned it into something I thought utterly beautiful that also packing it with all of our detritus, all of our waste, and um, the things that he brought to bear with it. It's anthropomorphizing nature, and yet he's still getting at a very deep and primal thing. Mm. And I just thought those were beautiful sculptures and photographs. Mm. 
you know, and again, that I've seen that in a lot of galleries, people working, I think it's in this show, uh, it was a Carol Bove who did the plywood, yes. and just under tension with just those little tinkly bells and the busted up pieces of um, cinder block with the That's glitter all over Peterson. it. I'm sorry? Mitzi Peterson. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And I thought those were really beautiful pieces that kind of continue this vein that I saw started at, uh, at the new museum. But yes, the, the fourth floor certainly seemed to have s- several artists who um, were presenting things in uh, uh, artfully unartful materials, uh, building trade, leftover type materials. Uh, uh, I'm struggling with a few names, but... Uh, we, well, there was Patrick Hill with the concrete. The and concrete, the glass, from, yes. Which his show that he had earlier at Bordolami, where some of the glass had fallen and broken and they just left it. I yes. kind of wish that had happened here because they were more interesting pieces that way. Well, we can all go by with a sledgehammer <laughs> and uh, help it along its way. Um, then there was the, the whole structure that was also on the floor, um, wanna, uh, made out of. Um, Wood, um, in frames. Well, Washburn, was, Phoebe? Not Phoebe Washburn, mm-hmm. no. Uh, oh, I hate it. Okay, uh, I think Dexter Sinister, perhaps? That's the pamphleteers. Um, I know who you're referring to. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, an inst- can we have the slides back? And then we can... Uh, Okay, but uh, yeah, boom, boom, boom. That well, that's this, this one. This one here. Oh no, that's a different artist. The yeah, one with mirrors it. in it. Yeah. That one. Yeah. That one. Who's that on the right? Who's that on the right? Anyone know? You have Heather Rao doing the um, the the yeah, and that's yeah. Well, this is going to sound wonderful in the recording on the uh, internet. <laughs> <laughs> um, Carly dubbed the biennial the, the Facebook biennial, which is... The uh, editors dubbed it the Facebook <laughs> biennial. There you are. You, 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 but we can pretend. We can pretend, yeah. yes. I, I tried to quote you, but my newspaper didn't allow that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I do quote you on a, uh, another review I wrote of the biennial that um, the Australian magazine Art Influence. Um, yeah, this seemed to be a, an occasion... I mean, in, in, the, in the bad old days... Um, say, in the 50s or 60s, the, the, the criticism of the biennial was that it was a sort of insiders just choosing, um, uh, just going to studios in New York City and choosing a, a circle of people who seemed to be in the cultural leadership of the art scene. And, and then in more recent years, and perhaps in a way 2006 was a culmination of this, a sense of um, bringing in outsiders, people who are not known for making art, and, and also uh, a lot of coll- um, the curators playing a game quite often of, of, uh, in 2006 of uh, actually showing works with sort of false names. Um, uh, Carly, do you think um, 2008 has gone back in a way to the bad old days and that there seems to be um, a remarkable number of artists who, who know each other and, and a network 
that um, that the curators uh, slot into? Well, I mean, I think the um, the difference today is that um, nobody tries to be uh, nobody is disingenuous enough to say that um, networking is not a real and powerful um, effect in any um, any profession are among them. And so the, the, in this case, in some ways, it's very overt in some of the works, um, um, such as Fia Backstrom's, um, mu much of which in her past work, actually, not, not so much. She leaves a record of two performances um, in this, which made it perhaps less um, visually exciting, admittedly, and it was opposite to um, video pieces where it was installed, so it looked kind of like a concessionaire's booth, which is not what I think they were going for. Um, uh, but it, so it's a record of two performances about, um, about uh, networks in, in different mm -hmm. ways, one where she asked the curators to make clay letters, and another in which she um, put keyword uh, term searches into um, commercial uh, photo archives like Getty or Corbus and, and some of the, um, the banalities that emerged and then a piece of the Lawrence Wiener exhibition that had just been on. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, part of the idea is that just putting it, uh, putting it up front that, of course, everything relies to a certain degree on, on networks um, makes it less evil in some way, hopefully. <laughs> With the networking trouble, either of the other gentlemen, um, the the familiarity, uh, the close the, the close knit circle that seemed to be emerging. No, because I'm not for me because I'm probably the most uninformed of all the panelists up here in the sense that um, I'm not that plugged in. You know, my beat is not. Um, mostly the contemporary gallery scene. So I have a lot of catch as catch can, and probably a lot more of the artists were new to me, you know, in the biennial. And then I certainly am not plugged into the sort of like who knows who kind of things. But I want to say a couple of things. Um, one is the business of backstory. And, you know, it's the pieces that require a backstory and they require you to know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that's okay. I certainly wouldn't lay down a rule. I don't want to sit here and who is it? Alfred North Whitehead, the true work of art creates the taste by which it is to be enjoyed, you know, or some sort of stuffy rule like that. But when you've got 80 artists, it's a little bit of a burden to go and, you know, suss out the backstories of, of all the pieces and in a couple of the pieces. Uh, one that somebody else probably likes up here. I thought the backstory of all those glass things being sent through customs and shipping was more interesting than the piece. Um, <laughs> the second thing is, you talked about the, uh, was it Pia Backstrom's uh, mm -hmm. thing, installed opposite two video things? And I'll put in a plug here for uh, uh, an idea. I don't know what it, you know, what it is. Uh, my wife, who is a painter, has suggested it. It's, it's, it, it hardly ever works with works of art that are sort of paintings in particular, but anything that's sort of conservative morphologically, that's an inanimate object, to be installed with all the video stuff. 
Um, not this one, but last time I remember the Marilyn Minters outside of somebody's very active video booth actually slightly vibrating on the wall, <laughs> you know? And uh, a radical solution would be, I mean, just, I realize it would be a quadrennial then for some artists, but why not go to alternate, you know, one for sound and film and video and performance like that, and the other one for, for static. I understand that there are all kinds of problems with that, but uh, it has a lot of trouble with the, you know, with, the, with the installation. And the last little thing I want to say is what I really did like, and I don't know whether it was thing, I, I thought the title for the whole show should have been Sculpture Involuntaire. I thought that was so good, just that part of the, you know, the piece. I really like that, just for words. It was nice. I could have titled the biennial. Anyway, I'll shut up. No, uh, you're not being paid to shut up. Please, uh, please. Or we're paid <laughs> by the word. <laughs> by the idea, I'm afraid. No. Um, uh, by the word, we'd all be rich. Can yes. I have my quarter now? Yes. <laughs> Of course, I mean, the, the, uh, there was a time when the Whitney did alternate between a year when it would be painting and a year when it would be sculpture and other things. I mean, that, um, I, I hear you when it comes to the whole, not just the, the, the technical consideration of the, the intrusion into time and space of uh, moving images or uh, sound pieces with, with paintings, which is sort of, in a way, out of time, um, but also uh, the whole aesthetic experience that's required to, to, to take in something stiller um, and uh, more perhaps meditative than um, something that, um, uh, well, I'm imposing value judgments by saying one medium is meditative rather than the other, but um, uh, things that are in uh, real time and things that are durational uh, just absorb a different kind of energy from things that uh, are asking you to bring some of your own uh, thoughts and feelings to them. Which is durational? The durational, the, as I say, a video which is seven minutes and two seconds long. You watching it. Yes, if you're obliged to spend three minutes and 43 because seconds. Because I, ha I have to say that with the Robert Bechtel paintings, yeah. which when I'd seen his show at Gladstone earlier this year, mm. I really loved the paintings and I, I, I loved that show. Mm. He really captured that weird, adulterated paradise that is California. But when I walked through the Charles Longs and through some of the construction detritus and stuff mm. and felt like I stumbled on them, I, they just, they didn't look good at all. And I was trying to figure out why and it on my third trip back, suddenly it clicked in, and I, the, the static wasn't really from videos or anything. It was just from the different things. Like I say, any group show feels that way, mm -hmm. where, where it's, it's so many different uh, effects hitting you. Mm. But I felt like they were really hammered by what was going on around them. But suddenly they clicked mm -hmm. for me, and again, they were some of my favorite things, ended up being some of my favorite things in the show. As the same thing happened with the one of the best pieces I thought was the Omar Fast Omir Fast mm -hmm. video because a lot of times I do find videos kind of I always check to see how long they are to, you know <laughs> because I got to decide do I have time to really watch this because if mm -hmm. you're going to you have to to watch the whole thing Which is a and the great thing about his video was for once 
I felt like there was a reason to have videos in a gallery because it was this four part, the four screens, the same story being told so many different ways. You could get up and rotate around it. It was rather than just sitting in a chair and watching a movie, um, you, this, this felt like a reason to be in a gallery. Did, did you feel then uh, in, on the opposite, or did others feel in the opposite, that the Spike Lee film, which is really a film, which one could it's be seen hours, yeah. in, in film forum, or better still, at home on your uh, computer or, well, or TV? I'm, I'm going to contradict myself now, because yes. every time I walked into that room, I was riveted. Now, I admit, I did not watch the whole thing because it was four hours long. But, and I was making the rounds to see all the work. But every time I walked in there, I f mm. it, it was riveting. But I think that's just his power as a filmmaker. I, and also the subject. I was yes. riveted. I spent about an hour in there when I, and then felt very guilty that I hadn't yeah. spent that, that hour time. looking at. I thought uh, the inclusion of the Spike Lee was purely symbolic. Um, yeah. I thought, I mean, this is something I did and anyone could. Um, um, and not tokenistic, but symbolic. I mean, it, it, and it, you can rent on DVD, and um, so including him and making the space for him was making a statement, I thought, as much as anything else, and it was in that cluster of works that, on, that we have been talking about on the fourth floor that spoke very strongly to me of the kind of drowned world, and that included mm -hmm. um, the Charles Long, which, again, um, I had seen a solo show of his once and was, um, and it took this, this took, um, convinced me more uh, about his work, um, if only, you know, for the opportunity to be able to say, yeah, great blue hair and excrement um, mm. multiple times um, when talking about it. But um, it was with also the Mitzi Peterson or Patterson um, sculptures um, that had, that were like a dredge, looked dredged from a riverbed and the Phoebe Washburn <laughs> Um, which, you know, is supposed to be some sort of Rube Goldbergian um, contraption that, um, you know, goes through elaborate but somewhat useless motions of purifying the Gatorade and, and, and um, but they were all, to me as a group, um, much more power, they were all, to me, much more powerful as a group yeah. um, rather than individual, and then so the, the Spike Lee seemed to give them Gravitas. Uh, yeah, or gravitas, exactly, yeah. Or, 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 or a kind of conceptual gel to bring them together, mm. which, is, um, which is surely a sign of a certain kind of intellectual success in a, in a group or survey show if, if, uh, if one work can be catalytic in that way. Mm. Don't you agree? Well, I think that's a little bit what I meant when I said it's a bleak one. This, the Spike Lee seemed a movie about the end of civilization, what's waiting for us all if things don't turn around. Because here's a major American city that's still decimated. It's, it's mind-boggling. And he gets that point across beautifully. Well, I didn't read it in such apocalyptic terms. I saw it as more specifically political, that it's saying, yes, it's a major American city, but it's a poor and a black city. And that's why it's still in uh, disarray. Well, I, I think that's true, but I also think that it was, it was implying somewhat that this awaits us all as our society, as our civilization gets more stratified. The people who are not going to be drowned in the, the coming drowned world are those that can afford private security, that can afford to build on the high ground, that can, mm. can get away. I, I, I do think... Um, I came away from it thinking of, the, of times in history where civilization has just unraveled. Mm -hmm. um, so I do think he was getting at that 
But yes. obviously, you're right. It is a particular city with a particular demographic. I there mean, is a, uh, isn't there in November? There's some a biennial, kind of a biennial New Orleans Dan Cameron. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it will be interesting to see. Um, I would like to go to it. I, I feel slightly queasy about it, you know, being part of the art world that descends on New Orleans. You know, am I doing any good by being there? Am I doing more harm by being there? Anywhere there is this thing. But could I turn, could I ask a couple of questions that turn this back to the gossipy section of the, <laughs> or do you want to stay on the profound track? Uh, we, can, we can find some uh, um, uh, galvanizing middle ground. I don't know. Apocalyptic gossip. Two questions <laughs> that I'm curious about. One thing is I have read in various reviews of the biennial that the two curators, um, some writers brought up the fact that they were overseen um, and they worked under, with, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, implying that there was, yeah, they weren't given full reign, that somebody higher up you know, I don't know whether it's Donna DeSalvo or somebody else, you know, was sort of not had veto power, but there was something like that. And I put that together. Is that a cause and effect with a certain flatness and unadventuresomeness, if that's a word that some people complain about? And the second thing I want to know for inside kind of, I was just curious, and this is a, you know, a group of works I am particularly care for, Joe Bradley's paintings. How did he get his own little temple in there? And and it might have been it might have been out of pity for any uh, object that might have to share the space with it. Okay. But but I mean let's. You know some works. I, I want uh, us eventually to come back to the apocalypse. But, but some uh, people like it was a, to deal with the gossip. You know Ms. Ackerman's yes. those painting kind of works. Well they're out there and they have to fend for themselves out in yes. the, like the regular playground and he gets. He got this little, little inner sanctum. This inner sanctum. Yes. Yes. I agree. I would have liked to have seen Bechtel's paintings in with those because I think they probably would have fought it to a draw, if not more. Yeah. Well, I can um, be the disagreeable one. I, t I, I loved the Bradley Room. I thought it was very beautiful. I thought it was this kind of, um, you know, um, Rothko Chapel for the video game generation or um, the, I mean in terms the colors are very primary and um, there's just such a lovely light humor to it to me um, you know it uh, one critic wrote that they were something like the poor man's um, Ellsworth Kelly but he's of course you know playing with the, playing with um, the tradition but in a very um, um, Gentle. No, I think it's. I think it's actually. It, I mean, they're these giant robots. It's. Um, they're anthropomorphic, but they're awkward. Um, they. They have this kind of digital human feeling. Um, to me, I, I. I enjoyed the room quite a bit and went back several times. And what I'm hoping at the end that maybe some of the audience members can rescue me from my lack of words in describing how much I enjoyed them. But I. I, I um, uh, would speak up for them. Good. That's what we want. Excellent. Um, as to as to um, uh, the institutional factor, as to why uh, you know, first of all, here are, are two very young curators. Give them the task. I mean, very young, my age. Okay, give them the task of uh, curating the biennial. Um, but then let it be known that they're being uh, they've got these built-in mentors in uh, 
various personages. Uh, um, it, it's sort of having your cake and eating it, isn't it? They're saying, uh, we're, we're going to pass the mantle to youth. We trust youth. Uh, but, but here are the youth's mentors who are going to make sure they do OK. It seemed a funny mix, in a way, to me. Um, uh, but um, what seemed funnier still to me is, is how um, it was, there was a reversion not just to the paradigm of uh, a circle of people who know each other, but uh, you know, in, in past years there's been this sort of um, uh, ethical imperative to, to cover the whole nation. There, there was even a biennial, I remember, where they had different curators for five different regions in order to really bring home the fact that, this, that America is not New York. Um, and yet here was a biennial where America was uh, New York or California, and then less than 10% of the show was the rest of the United States, um, with, I think, Chicago coming in a very, very poor third, and then Miami. Florida having three artists, something like that. Um, uh, I, I, you know, following up from what I'd learned about the sociability of the artists from Carly's wonderful profile, I got the impression, perhaps, that... Um, uh, these are these are curators drawn to, to, to the sea and the sun in in their <laughs> preference for LA, Miami, San Francisco. Not that the sun is too reliable in San Francisco, but um, uh, Peter, tell us about the Californian element. You've written a book on Californian art. Uh, what's the, what do you think the attraction, especially in an, in a in, in a uh, biennial whose aesthetic byword is is bleakness? What's the attraction of California this year? Well, talk about unplugged. I mean, I moved to New York from California, you know, going on 25 years ago. I go back, but I'm not um, uh, all that conversant. But I do go back, and I can take a couple of guesses. I mean, one is, and I've said this if I give a lecture or do some crits in the middle of the country, that if I were getting an MFA in Kansas City and they handed me my certificate and I had my choice, I'd go west rather than east, simply because there are more dollars per emerging, there are more collector dollars per emerging artist in LA probably than any place else. Now, of course, this is one of those market things that all the emerging artists will flood there and then it won't you know, be that, but, but it is, you know, uh, uh, a hot market. Secondly, you probably have, uh, I don't think you have much of a municipal, if that's the word, that's not the right word, uh, you know, a city flavor to things anymore. It, you, you know, it's been a long, long time since light and space art and Ed Bruchet's kind of pop and things like that, and even a long time since Larry Pittman and people like that. So they do out there what everybody else does, and you can find bleak, you know, in the sunny shores of Santa Monica as well as any place else. Um, and it's also, it's also the second city. Um, but other than tabulating the percentage of women artists in the show, um, which Jerry Saltz always does, which I think is valuable. I don't know how much you can read into the tea leaves of, of what cities are represented in, and, and so forth. I mean, it comes and goes. I remember a biennial 
gee, in the 70s, the late 70s, there was a thing for Texas. And there were all these artists from Houston, you know, all these cowboy surrealists. And, uh, you know, it, it comes and goes. I don't know how much you can read into that. I, I was suggesting an institutional rather than uh, a zeitgeist reading. I wasn't, I wasn't accepting that the best and most vital art is all happening in California. I was um, impugning that these curators did not go very far afield in, in, and perhaps rather abdicated a responsibility. Well, is that, I didn't read Carly's article, but is that, I don't know what the connections necessarily are in this tight network of these artists. Who, who knows who? I mean, if you can say that quickly. It's not necessarily any more tightly connected than any previous year. It's just... Yeah, it um, used to be if you knew Mary Boone in the 80s. Right. I mean, there have help. been certain galleries that have been overrepresented in past years, but that certain um, artists, especially um, in the performative realms, were happy to make um, connectivity um, overt and, and, um, and, and not be fey about who they didn't know. Um, and, and some works uh, were very clearly about that in a broader sense, um, and that was the symbolism also in, in one way of having the um, Park Avenue Armory open for, for March to performance works, which I'm sure not... I'll make an assumption that very few of us actually went to, but it was nice to know that they existed. Um, and um, um, and in terms of the the um, you know the curators today seem to uh, love to travel and as part of the job description, so they certainly went everywhere. I think that what you see is um, the rise of LA is partially a fact and and partially. Um, uh, probably just um, yeah aesthetic bias and, and again having to do with where where people meet and um. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well wasn't there the last biennial and you have to jog my memory there was some complaint about wasn't Philippe Verne one of the curators and his wife or something as a dealer and uh, was something Perry Rubenstein was that it and there was there was thing about ooh half dozen of these artists are da 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 and this is you mean to say there was a conflict of interest in the art world? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a vicious rumor. <laughs> Let's put an end to that one straight away. Yeah, okay. I didn't say that. No, no. <laughs> Not in the art world. <laughs> um, so how about some individual artists who then um, are either just individually on their own merits really grabbed our attention or whether perhaps they also are indicative of, of, of the mood, uh, helped establish it. Um, uh, I don't, uh, Bradley, we've sort of mentioned already, but um, um, let's, let's think, can we think for a moment about Olaf? Um, no, not Olaf. <laughs> <laughs> Omar, fast. Let's go to, to fast. If he, yeah, we are, there he is. So this is a, um, a, a Bob, mm -hmm. describe, describe what was happening in this video for us. You? So you had four screens on the two back screens. The director was talking to um, a person telling a story, and he was telling a story that segued back and forth between his service in Iraq and shooting at a car, not meaning to kill anyone, but killing an occupant in the back seat. And when he was stationed in Germany, meeting a girl 
who claimed to fall in love with him on the first date, and it turned out she was heavily into self-mutilation. And you're watching the two of them just talk, talking heads, with some very fast cuts between the gestures of their heads and everything, which at first I didn't figure out. But then when you walked around to the other two screens, there was the acting out of these stories, the shooting on the, on the road of a car approaching an American roadblock, and the soldiers panicking, and he shot and killed one of the occupants. The car, it turned out, wasn't a threat. But they take that body and throw it in the trunk, and then while this is happening, he's segueing back and forth to the story of the girl in Germany who's mutilating herself. And like I said, I found it just riveting. And one of the things about the beauty of the way it was told is it was ostensibly still photos of the story, of the, of the narrative, um, almost illustrational, but they weren't really still photos. The people were standing still while the camera rolled, so it had a rather surreal, both dreamlike and nightmarish aspect to it. And the story was both so horrible and yet so beautifully told that I was really taken by it. It was one of my definite picks. Yeah, well, it won the, the Bucksbourne Prize, didn't it? Um, uh, Carly or Peter, do you, did you have any strong response to this piece or some skepticism to share? Or? No, I agree with what um, Robert said. Um, I'm being the hidebound old formalist that I am, uh, I found myself moved into the story and by the story by a couple of technical devices that were used, especially when they're talking in the Humvee or that, you know, the vehicle, the way that it's kind of still but not still mm -hmm. and it moves. Then there was another thing, and I couldn't figure out whether, you know, I was misreading it or, or what because I came in in the middle and, you know, stayed for a while and then came back around that... I thought the vehicle was supposed to be moving, but clearly it wasn't because there was a kind of transverse road on the outside of the window which didn't go anyplace. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like a... And I liked that... It's a thing in film, video film, that I, you know, that I noticed that grabs me. There was a, a film a long time ago, 20 years, I don't know, called Zentropa. Did anybody ever see that? And there's... <clears throat> it's about the... <clears throat> Uh, the aftermath of World War II in Germany with the, the Nazi, you know, r resistors that are still going, the werewolves. And there's this one, I still remember it, I can't remember a lot of the rest of the movie except that I liked it, which is what happens after a while. Um, and somebody opens a door and the conductor is there to take their ticket. And it's a kind of a menacing thing, like is he going to find out, you know? And when they open the door to the compartment and the conductor is there, it's obviously a rear screen projection. It's not a real person. And it's slightly bigger than it should be, the guy standing at the door. And it's, the movie is filled with devices like that. And I really like that. And in the plot of the movie, it moved me. And in this thing, it added to it a lot. It was an amazing texture he achieved with those those still photos that weren't really still photos. Yes. Yeah. And the disconnect between these two the stories. And the well, between yeah. the German scenario and the Iraq scenario. But it was the same, um, same interviewee, which, mm -hmm. um, you know, in the, um, 
in the reenacted narrative, that actually was almost slower to piece together than, than seeing mm -hmm. the guy be interviewed. And then the, I, I, I love the piece because of the questions of authenticity. Um, mm -hmm. And um, um, you, when you see the actual interviewee, um, your question, you're faced with um, a kind of question of artistic sadism. I mean, here's the artist interviewing um, a soldier for his art project about how he killed a man. And, um, and because of the elaborate formal qualities of the video, you know, you have to ask yourself whether this is the soldier that killed that man, whether the story itself is true. And um, I actually, you know, did ask and, and have the answer if you'd like to know, but it's, it's I, I think that those kind of questions are central to the experience of the piece as well. What was the answer? Has everyone seen it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's true, that would be a spoiler. No, yeah, did we want a spoiler? Yeah, I mean, it, it is the, the soldier that's interviewed, which um, it's, it's, not such a, it's, a, it's not such a big gotcha, um, but it's, um, makes adds yet another level um, to uh, the relationship between um, the you know the artist and his materials in this case a human being with a very real emotional pain that he's processing uh, in the interview and, and a considerable state of denial he talks about mm -hmm. the possibility that he may have hurt somebody and we can see the guy's brain splattered on the uh, in the incident. reenactment mm. yeah mm. Um, well, this video, I think, compared rather uh, in, in terms of its, its gravitas and its sort of compelling sense of significance, uh, formed a rather interesting comparison with Asino's work. Um, can we go back to the images for that? Uh, uh, here he is. Oh, sorry. Okay. Edgar Asino. Uh, quite a strong visual. Uh, sense of actually using the room when one went in, that there's uh, uh, multi-screens uh, of different performances by this stand-up comic, uh, which would, and the, the, this, the volume, the sound, would go from one joke to another, uh, usually uh, depriving us of the punchline, although the degree to which that would be sadistic is questionable. <laughs> They seem to be mostly shaggy dog stories rather than um, good old, good old punchlines. Um, I, I, I felt that um, once I got over the, uh, the, the 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 fun texture of uh, the, the different colours and the, the the use of the space, that this was a particularly uh, abject and dreary installation in, in, on any kind of terms, regardless of what it might tell us about the zeitgeist just as an experience in itself, but would, would somebody like to stand up for Arsenault? Did I miss something with Arsenault? Uh, I think I'm gonna have to play this role again. Is yes, that right? Because, I, okay. Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, I like this for reasons that um, were completely um, not evident if you went by the wall text. Um, but um, you enter this room, it's this cave of video screens. Um, but there, it's very quiet. Um, the actual, um, the actual routine, which is not that funny, um, will pipe in over a different screen, a slightly higher volume than another. And you see um, a comedian delivering a routine in different um, venues, um, and 
uh, to me, it is very much one of the few pieces overtly about race. Um, you know, black comedian David Allen Greer, um, and it was a lot about, um, to me, the reception of race in different venues. Um, and um, you know, as I was thinking, as I, as I was thinking about why it was interesting to me that you know the mere fact that you have a black comedian performing doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be about race but as soon as you talk about that question um you're immediately into some you know some of the democratic primary um debates that we've been going through of self-presentation um and 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 how people um respond to um uh, Obama as a, as a neutral figure. I mean, clearly this piece is not made with that, but it's, it's engaging all the same questions about audience um, um, uh, in, the, in what I thought was actually a, a kind of gentle way. I mean, the, the comedian is portraying awkwardness. It's not always that funny, and, and awkwardness in the audience as well. But. Um, I just want to say one thing about when you, when you bring up works like this, Maybe it's 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 me, but when nobody speaks up for Edgar Arsenault, I like that speak up for Arsenault. It has scans nicely. Um, is that probably for me? Maybe seventy-five percent of the works in the show, the reaction is more kind of, uh, you know. In other words, I'm I'm not again it, but I I'm not moved to say anything about it either, you know, one way or another. Your I don't silence, know. Is that your silence will be eloquent? Your huh? Your silence will be eloquent. Well, no, but is, I'm asking, is that, is that the way with other people at large group shows where you go through it and it isn't that, that they all fall on one side of you know, the pause and egg line or, yes. the, or another, but that you some of, of them don't move you to decode them to have a mm -hmm. passionate opinion about one way well, or another? Well, I think it depends what side of the bed you get up sometimes, too, because you go to see a show a second time and it, it clicks for you in a way that it didn't at first, that you accrue a certain appreciation for something. You know, mm -hmm. This particular one, the one thing, there's a scene in this that's shot in a pool hall and it reminds me of some redneck bars I knew in Baltimore and David Allen Greer is up there really just working out a routine and there's that, that give and take between an audience and a stand up when he's not being funny and he's wearing this big shirt that says I heart black people on it and it's basically a white audience and that had a very menacing edge to it in that this piece I, I, when I first went in I did a uh like Peter but then when it showed up on our slide list I went back and I went into it and I much more clicked for me the second time around and again it was the it was both the the lack of funniness but then you saw this underlying menace to it too. Plus I also liked that when you walked around because it, many of the things were set low and projected you provided your own patron who'd had enough and was getting up and walking out on the screen because your shadow was cast on, cast on the screen. I mean, there, there is the issue of um, as we talked about alluded to earlier of time-based works and perhaps how they affect you as a viewer is um, different um, than painting, sculpture, um, and static mediums, and um, there might not be as many um, um, uh, immediate revelation, or um, thinking again of the chapel metaphor, but that kind of um, um, ecstatic immediacy um, that some um, uh, 
non-moving works uh, can provide. Um, and by contrast, and not to bring in a whole nother huge show, I uh, recently saw the um, installation of MoMA's contemporary collection that is up mm. now yeah. that is called what? It hasn't title um, as they, they redo it every three months and and that was like revisiting um, you know many of the artists are well known um, but th that had some stationary static revelations that I thought was a really interesting yes. contrast to the um, biennials Dorothea you could help us with the title the show that you're in at, at MoMA what's it called? Multiplex Multiplex, Multiplex thank yeah. you which is referring to a moving image sort of metaphor, so it's um, perhaps... I find that um, immensely satisfying, uh, mm -hmm. one of the best displays of their holdings at MoMA uh, since, since the relaunch of the museum. Um, very... Uh, I would, would almost venture that it would have made a better Whitney Biennial than um, <laughs> the, the Whitney Biennial, um, although, of course, it is a historic overview, but it, does, it is heavily slanted to the present, and um, have, multiplex seems to be also um, painting friendly and color friendly. Um, it's almost as if there's a moral lesson in the biennial that um, um, you, one is not to have too too much pleasure. I mean, it's it's, it's almost <laughs> as if it's almost as if to say. Uh, I think there's a great amount of humor too. There's a black humor uh, yeah. in the uh, uh, yeah, but there's not. Um, uh, it, it, these are not painting lovers, are they, the, these curators? I mean, they, they, we're, we're given a handful of painters, and they're, they're usually, I mean, Bechtler, I, I, would, I would say, is probably the dreariest of the photorealists. Um, uh, I, I just find his work deeply pointless. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not a greatest fan of Richard Estes, but it, after you see Bechtler, I think you, you go back to Estes for considerable technical and, and, um, and also thematic richness. Um, again, I mean, Karen Kalimnik is, 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 is given to us as a sort of emblematic painter. Um, and do, let's, do we have slides for um, Kalimnik? Um, perhaps we didn't, actually. Well, let's so stop with Ackerman. Let's go back to Ackerman. Um, Ackman is a painter I have enjoyed in the past and, and found to have, you know, but it seems that, that, that our curators have, have found the, uh, in looking for the abject in Ackerman, have found her least um, riveting work. It seems the agenda is driven by a, a sort of a moral imperative rather than an aesthetic one. Seems, I want to say something about the, about the painting in, in the, the exhibition. I, I, I think Jerry Saltz had a, a, an aside in his, in his review that he thought it would have been better had they gone whole hog and just left it out <laughs> instead of, you know, you know, if you're going to take that position, just leave it out. Don't have token painting. Mm. And then for me, and this is, you know, close to my heart because I'm a painter, um, a lot of the stuff and I'll be, we could have an argument about Bechtel. I've always liked Bechtel a lot, thought he was the most poetic of the photorealists. <laughs> I don't think he can paint people. That one of the guy in the crosswalk is pretty bad. The goose-stepping guy. It's yeah. pretty bad. Um, but it also may be regional, that, that those, 
paintings that he used to do, you know, the vintage Bechtels, like, when they were titled with cars, like 64 Chrysler, and it would be the thing parked out of one of those little stucco houses in Sometimes Oakland, with the cover you know, over. and I, you know, maybe it reached me because I, you know, I've been there. Um, so we could have a back and forth about Beckel, which would be too inside, but a lot of the, so much of the painting is like painting based and it's almost like anybody is afraid to pick up a brush and go to a canvas and try sincerely to do something that where you put your ass on the line and it's going to be mawkish or it's going to be stupid. And one of the, one of the ones that, you know, um, one of the works that got up my nose most was Ellen Harvey's installation. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it was, it was just tediously didactic about what painting is, isn't, can be, looking through, you know, all that, all that sort of stuff. And I thought, why not just, you know, cut to the chase and try to, try to do something. But I am interested in it as, as kind of symptomatic of something that may be a kind of installation like Rottenberg or Phoebe Washburn or something mm -hmm. like that is the only kind of art in the zeitgeist where you can actually set out to try to, you know, express yourself from the heart and, and make it, and if you do something like painting, it's so, what's the word I want? It's been filtered so much that the work has to be comments upon painting, and I'm getting, I mean, I found it, those things kind of fatiguing. Mm -hmm. Well, there was something about Ellen Harvey in the catalog that I may not have understood, and I can't remember who wrote it, but they said um, that here was a, uh, reassertion of painting while, quote, acknowledging at once the medium's often postulated impossibility as well as the almost comic redundancy of its defense. Um, and this was in relation to Ellen Harvey. And, and I'm not quite sure what the impossibility of painting is. It's been around for 30,000 years. It, it seems, seems to be doing quite well yeah, yes, and, without and, these... Uh... And if I was going to mount a spirited defense of painting, she'd be way down the list to do it with, you know. Um, so I, I, I do think perhaps the curators didn't, don't, aren't really painting fans, you know. I think we, we can all agree yeah, on And then you have the inverse, or not the inverse, the corollary of, um, in the 06 there was more painting, but it was bad painting. Yes. So it looked like they just really hated painting, you know. <laughs> but funnily enough, there were people who didn't paint but who made, for instance, well, she does paint, but Marilyn Minter's photography, uh, one of her photographs was the, uh, you know, the poster uh, piece for the 06. It's a very, paint, very painterly photograph. I, I just want to, I do not think it is incumbent upon curators of a Whitney Biennial to include painting. You know, that no, there isn't any such thing as a contemporary art exhibition in a major museum, blah, 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 that would entirely leave out painting. If that's the way you feel, leave it out. You know, there's, you can, you can do that. Um, um, well, you say you can do that. The Whitney Biennial is a show that many, many members of the general public who don't see any other survey exhibition for a couple of years of contemporary art will see. I would question the, the ethical right to, to be creating an exhibition that's representative of art in America and leave out painting. 
I don't think you do have that right. You should be doing that in a small, esoteric, scholarly group show somewhere else, other than the Whitney Biennial. Yeah, but think of think of all the other ways in which the Whitney Biennial is the you know uh, represents the elephant by exhibiting one hoof or one part of a tail or a piece of an ear. It does that with a lot. I mean. Robert Bechtel is not representative of what painting is going on in America. You could carry that, you know, yeah. any direction. And I also noticed that you were, you've gone back to the question that was, at the beginning, what is the Whitney Biennial supposed to do? And I noticed yeah. in your comment there's an assumption that it's supposed to be representative of the art that's going on in America. Or the best, or the, or the art that, 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 that says something, yes. Is that such an old fogey, pathetic position? Here's a show that, uh, you know, a great number of people, as I, I'm repeating myself, but there, are, there is a public who might only know about current, the current scene in, in America from the Whitney Biennial. It's got a reputation, it's got a history, it's therefore got a responsibility, which is... Anyone on the panel agree that the Whitney Biennial has a responsibility? Well, it's like I said early on, I, I do think, I've always kind of imagined it as trying to capture the zeitgeist in, the bo in a bottle. Mm -hmm. And I do, and I think there's certainly good painting out there in Chelsea right now, but they didn't choose any of it. I, you know, if I was going to choose a painter, you know, I might choose Terry Winters, but I know he's been in them before, and... You know, but I would use him maybe if I was going to mount my defensive painting, not Ellen Harvey. Okay. Get back to your uh, art fair um, question a yes. bit before. Um, uh, it, um, I mean, definitely with, um, but I think with the proliferation of art fairs, people feel like it, with, uh, you know, these um, curated shows, they have the opportunity to be perhaps anti-market and painting, true or not, represents something um, portable, often beautiful, and the market, um, you know, and you, you go through the armory um, at the same time, and it's lots of photographs and paintings, and, um, it, you know, it's neither, certainly being done just as much, but, um, uh, you know, a more radical uh, biennial gesture might be to, um, yeah, to, to, you know, canvas art fairs and do a best of show or something to really, if you're really going to put it out there, mm -hmm. what's driving, you know, uh, a, a certain segment of, of production. I so. just find it very sad that one should have a sense that either um, art is going to be about profound, important, existential and political themes, in which case it has to look dreary and boring, or it's going to be about painting, in which case it's got just going to be pretty and not really connected to anything that's going on. That suggests art and is, is, in, is in as much trouble as America. Um, because, you know, for centuries, painting was a means of, of expressing the highest uh, emotional, spiritual, political, moral issues. I, I kind of like, that's why my favorite guy in the uh, biennial was uh, Mr. Caesar, if we can get to him. Um, I need to see the name before I can... Jedediah? Jedediah, yes. Suitably prophetic sounding name uh, for, for, for such an um, apocalyptic biennial. Uh, the next one is... is, is uh, I just found this actually uh, um, more painterly than any of the paintings in the biennial. Um, it's process-driven, um, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's a work that has an amazing kind of resonance. I, I don't necessarily know how intentional the, the actual emotional effect of the work is, 
um, uh, in relation to the preoccupations of the artist, who's somebody I haven't studied much, but I just found in a show that had poor pickings that this was uh, something that uh, I found stimulating. Any, um, anyway, I think it's a good moment if the audience, if the panel will permit me to suggest that the audience, who've been very uh, quiet, no heckling yet, um, now, now's the time for some official heckling. Now, there's a mic that's going around, and so do, do wait for it. And thank you. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I raised my hand so eagerly, not because I had such an important comment, because it's directly related to what you all were just saying on the topic of painting. Just um, I would add, I noticed that, um, well, something that confirms for me uh, your, your sense that um, the curators um, included painting on a condition that it speaks of its own impossibility is that um, the wall text next to the Olivier Mosset, if that's how you say his name, yeah. uh, Larry Rink, uh, not Larry Rinker, um, Bob Nickus as, as saying, uh, it's as though these are paintings of painting itself. Yeah, it's, it's food for thought that, there, that there's not the obligation in other mediums to um, speak necessarily in a kind of uh, uh, internalized way about the possibility or otherwise of the medium, and yet all the mediums in the show have a history. Um, yeah. And panelists, you're very welcome to respond immediately if, if something tickles your fancy. Yes, I just wanted to follow up on the, the idea of relevance and how relevant the biennial is and is it asymptomatic of the culture and if the culture is reflecting in certain other ways. Is it just what we can expect? Is it generational? Is it cross-generational? Where is the... Somebody in one of the things I read maybe was quoting it from someplace else, that some smart-ass reference to the Whitney biopsy. Um, and I don't want to, well, see, this time I didn't, I didn't write anything about it. This is the only formal thing I'm doing about the about the Whitney. I didn't do anything for Newsweek, and I didn't do anything for Art in America. I reviewed the last one. And uh, uh, so I, I went through it sort of just looking for a little pick-me-up here and there. You know, I was looking for, <laughs> rather than trying to diagnose the condition of the culture from the biopsy of the Whitney, um, and for some reason it didn't seem to me all that bleak or down or abject, but maybe I've been seeing a lot of student work lately, and that's what they all do. Um, uh, and I just look for, is there something that has a little beauty? Is there something that has a little profundity to it? Is there something that has a little wit? I'm willing to accept any of those things separately, you know, in conspicuous quantities. And I found four or five things that I, you know, that I like. One last little tail end too about the, I don't want to go on about the, about the lack of painting, but the business about the installation art and stuff like that. I am a little bit sympathetic with the idea that in the absence of the NEA anymore, giving grants to artists who do unmarketable work and stuff like that, that a place like the Whitney Biennial is maybe 
a, a place where, where artists who can do things that aren't going to get much traction on the market you know, can be installed and fussed over and stuff like that, whereas they can't at art fairs. Of course, the obverse side of that is that often, and this has been pointed out with such artists, that basically it's lost leaders and what a lot of artists do commercially on a smaller scale is what, say, Christo does publicly on a public scale, which is does the Central Park gates and the things like that, but the market is the collages and the drawings and the things like that. Except with his, he supposedly, you know, plows it all back into the next project. Gentleman at the back, yes. Hi, I just had the experience of going to three uh, exhibitions um, that I thought, um, were really kind of inspiring. I went to see a uh, select Robert Irwin retrospective in San Diego. Uh, I saw the show at the Jewish Museum, and I saw a show uh, in mass called Birth of the Cool. And uh, I left those shows really feeling invigorated about the possibility of the arts. Um, and I wonder, why it's not possible, for example, uh, to take art, which kind of plays with the same ish issues as Robert Irwin does, to put in some Robert Irwin and put some of these younger people who are playing those kinds of games next to the master. And, you know, uh, and then there are some wonderful masters that are, were in the birth of the cool, like John McLaughlin. Uh, why not? put in a John McLaughlin and some contemporary variants of John McLaughlin. I mean, let us have some sort of anchor and let us see how certain things are evolving. Well, uh... I think you're thinking like a curator since um, uh, at the Eliasson show at MoMA they have um, a little backstory show with, yeah. with the Irwin. As, yeah, yeah. But that, that would suggests we should turn over to, to Mr. Barron, the, the, the next biennial, because, um, I mean, you have your aesthetic, and, and they have theirs, and there, there's not much room in their aesthetic for uh, the, the kind of chromatic intensity or the distilled yeah, formalism. Very different shows. Robert Irwin, the Birth of the Cool, and the Expression Show at the Jewish Museum. I think somebody with your sensibility would see them as three very different shows, and somebody with their sensibility would see them as three very similar shows. So therein, I think, perhaps lies the problem for us. But um, it seems that the old masters, the, the, I mean, because usually there, there are old masters who are wheeled out for a, a biennial, and it's, the, the talismanic old master seems to be John Baldessari, doesn't it? Well, I, I was going to say something about Baldessari in this business of the, when you put the, you know, the old war horses up against kids, a lot of times, the kids won't look so good, and that will look like, you know, you're trying to show them up. And one of the things that struck me about the Baldessaris, and I went in there, and I'll admit this, kind of with, I, I, I wanted to not like them. And I wanted to not like them because I said, okay, you know, he's cranking them out now. They're real slick products. They got that 3D thing on them. He's got all the elves in his studio working for him, and, and, um, we used to call John out on the West Coast, the world's tallest leprechaun. Um, 
And I came off the elevator, and damn if those things weren't snappy. And, I, and one of the things that hit me was, he sure shows the kids. And I didn't really want to think that. I wanted to think, okay, it's tapped out now. This is the other thing. It's going through the motions. They're made by somebody else, untouched by human hands, all that stuff. But they had something to them. And I think it would be very, it might be dangerous to do, you know, younger, older kind of things too didactically. Hmm. Some, so any, any other comments from the audience? Yes, lady here in the middle of it. Wait, please wait for the mic. I'd like to belabor the point about painting and just say that it's curious because right now painting is having a big resurgence. And so to leave it out at a time when it's filling the galleries and when people are so enthusiastic about it seems odd. And this is something I wrote that I'd like to repeat. We are not interested in things visual because we're pandering to the market but because we are visual artists and therefore not coincidentally interested in things visual. Well, I think that the word visual is a good one to end on at the National Academy of Design. So thank you very much, everybody. See you in the fall.